Friends, you're listening to Weld Found. This begins our fifth season. I'm your host, Tim Coons. This podcast is made possible by the Weld Community Foundation, who encourages us to spread the good. For more, head to weldcommunityfoundation.org. Dylan Fixmer is tuning up his guitar and is joined by his wife, Sarah Off, on violin. She's a professor at UNC. I interviewed Dylan at their home in Greeley, Colorado, and this is what happens when you hang out with musicians. Music just seems to emerge, just happens. Dylan is the composer in residence for the Greeley Philharmonic Orchestra. This is a relatively new position for Dylan. So far, he's showcased a violin concerto with the Phil last year, and he started a program called the Magic Baton Melody Contest, where students submit a melody and Dylan then orchestrates it. This fall, Dylan Fixmer has a big musical work that he's premiering called Seven Symphonic Portraits. It's October 14th, and where I work, the Weld Community Foundation, uh, they've helped commission this piece about Weld's history and hardships and dreams. I'm really looking forward to it. On today's show, we're gonna be hearing about Dylan's journey into becoming a composer. And on that front, I'd love to ask you, In your own life, how have you approached your vocation, your work, in relation to your talents and passions and profession? How have you found greater meaning? There's a term for this uh, from the Japanese language called ikigai. Ikigai is found at the meeting place of what you love, what the world needs, what you're good at, and, and then what you can be paid for. Within Dylan's story, You're gonna hear the journey of a a young man and his work from musician to teacher to composer. And in the end, he's still all three of those things, just more deeply tied into his community and more holy himself. My friends, it's so good to be back. Welcome to this season five of Weld Found. Dylan's teaching career started in Rifle, and then he went to Hodgkiss. Uh, This was 2010 to 2020, and he didn't find a a perfect fit with teaching. But he did find that he loved creating music with the students that he taught. I don't really, what am I going to do with this? What what am I going to contribute to the world? So I was really pushing to be like a teacher and really wanting to, to make that happen. And what I noticed about my teaching was... I hated most of it, with the exception of letting the kids create and walking them through the process of creation and, and giving them opportunities to create. And um, I loved that aspect. And through that, I started writing more and more music for my students. And what I noticed was when I would give them input and when they would give me input, we would, I would create something for them with them and that was my biggest joy, was like creating something that was meaningful about the truth that they had. So this would have been Rifle 2010 to 2015. Okay. Um, and 
the music I was writing with those kids was um, kindergarten through fourth grade general music stuff. So a lot of things for xylophones, a lot of things for recorders. Um, and then I would write them musicals. So I was required to, by the school, do a musical with each grade level each year. So I had five musicals every year and my budget was like 200 bucks. So I was like, great, I'm just gonna write them a musical each year. And so that was my, that was my introduction to writing, like really getting into writing because I had done a lot of writing. But then, um, you know, in Hotchkiss, I kind of tried to recreate that sort of thing, but I was also teaching middle school. So I was teaching middle school jazz band and drama. So we were having jazz band and we would have jazz band rehearsal. These kids were saints. We would have jazz band rehearsal at 7 a.m. Um, every Wednesday. Uh, and um, so before school. And there was a, uh, a guy who would deliver... Um, you, it was a UPS guy and he would walk by the room and we had to leave our doors open so he would walk by the room and we'd get to see him twice because he walked by this door and he would walk by that door because it was, you know, big music room. Um, and one of the girls, like, in the middle of rehearsal just puts her sax down she's like, that guy's wearing a kilt! And everybody just stops and looks at her like, what, CC? And she was like, he was totally wearing a kilt. He was like, kilt man power. Look at him carry those boxes in that kilt. And so, yeah, that was the response. He's just crashing the blood bank. And, and so, um, and then one of the other girls was like, Mr. Vicksburg, that's your next piece is Kilt Man Power. And so, you know, a few days later, I get handing out parts on their stands and they're like, this is amazing. And so we have this piece called Kilt Man Power. And, um, but that was like the connection. And I started, it, that was the moment that I realized that, okay, composing for me was realizing truth, using my, my nature of making stuff up but presenting that as a way to represent truth to other people and, and bring them some sort of reality in their world that they couldn't realize themselves. And that was a really important thing for me. Pieces like Kilt Man Power. And, and you could hear Dylan playing that on piano and singing the horn parts that he wrote for the jazz band. Pieces like that were a big hit with the kids. But teaching still had so many difficulties for Dylan surrounding it, especially as the time of the pandemic arose. And he had a hard falling out with the school that he was working at, the way that they were approaching his music classes. And this stepping out led him fairly quickly onto a very interesting path. Dylan had a piece in mind that he wanted to write. Inspired by something that had happened to him earlier in life, Dylan had purchased a violin and after owning it for several years, he found out that it had a very resonant past. It was owned by a woman named Terry Sternberg who had a tragic story. So I came home and I told Sarah, well, I'm not going back to work. <laughs> She's like, okay, so what, are you gonna, what, what would you like to do? And I was like, you know, um, I'm gonna be a composer and I'm going to write this piece of music for Terry Sternberg that I know that needs to happen and I'm going to finish this violin concerto. And so during that time, I just sat down and wrote the violin concerto. And um, I had no reason to do it other than just for myself. I was just like, nope, this is, this is what I want. And this, is, this needs to be told, the story needs to be told and I owe her this piece. And so wrote it for Sarah in honor of Terry and all of that. And um, I put the final bar line on the third movement 
and a week later got a call from Nick Kenny, and he was like, so tell me about what a composer in residence does and what you would do if you were a composer in residence for an orchestra. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, beautiful. one of those moments. And so that was my, that was my journey into composing. I love being a teacher and I love experiencing things with my students, but instilling knowledge on people is not my thing. My thing is discovery of things with with students. And my nature is invent, invention. So Dylan mentions Nick Kinney there, who was the executive director of the Greeley Philharmonic. And Nick reaches out to Dylan about becoming a composer in residence just as Dylan finishes this major work, this violin concerto, knowing that his wife can play the piece beautifully. And the piece is created in honor of Terry Sternberg. The story of how Dylan found the violin and discovered its past is pretty incredible. And as he tells the story, uh, I'm going to be playing parts for you from the violin concerto that Dylan wrote. You'll be hearing selections from the second movement, which is actually part of the concerto that he wrote first. And the recording is from the Greeley Philharmonic Orchestra performance in the fall of 2022. I was working in a music store in Boulder in college. This violin was brought in. Nothing was really known about it. Nothing really um, was, it was just unmarked. And um, the, it had a weird energy to it. It had something that I could not explain. And um, I would pick it up and I would play it with my limited violin skills. <laughs> Because at the time, getting a music ed degree, having to learn the violin, I was actually like right in the middle of violin lessons. So I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. I'll just play this one. But I could tell it was something really, really special. And so I was like, well, I don't know why, but I'm going to buy this violin because I like have to have to have this thing. It's it's way better and it's just going to sit here in this store. And I don't know why else, what, like, what else I should do with this. Then a, a long time went by, many, many years, and I had taken the violin out to play it and I was putting it on the wall because I have a wall hanger that I, I liked to have it out. I didn't want it to be in its case. I wanted it to be out so I'd pick it up and play it. But I open up the case and I'm like, huh, that isn't the bottom of the case. Because <laughs> this very old, it's shaped like the violin, you know. And um, I open up this case and underneath are hundreds of strings, just like the person who had owned it just had kept all of the strings that they had put on it. But then the most important thing was there were a bunch of different artifacts of, there was a flyer for an advertisement to a music picnic. There was a business card from a, a music store in Boca Raton, Florida. And then there was a receipt for some work to be done on the violin itself. And that receipt, very fortunately, had the name Sternberg written at the top of it. And so I was like, okay. And, and the receipt was from a music store in San Francisco. So I now had enough information to trace where this person was. Sounds like a detective story. <laughs> I, it was a little bit. It, it honestly, it, it was a little bit because we discovered was a woman named Terry Sternberg. Terry Sternberg was... Uh, first violinist in the San Francisco Ballet, which traced her back to San Francisco via that, that ticket. She was adopted by a family in Florida 
um, when she was young and she attended um, Miami University for violin, hence the Boca Raton violin shop where I can only assume that that's where she picked up this violin. And then the last one, the flyer, which was an interesting thing, tied her back to Colorado because it was like, well, how did this violin get here? Well, she was a frequent player of the the Colorado Festival Orchestra. But the the thing that really tore me apart was the what finding out kind of how the violin came to the shop, which was um, in 2009, she became homeless and um, the circumstances surrounding that, somehow the violin got to the shop. She passed away in 2013, which was two years before I had dug into the case and found the thing. There's a lot of stigma around homelessness for any, any given number of reasons. And I think what, what makes Terry's story so powerful is it's relatable, but it's not uncommon. Her story um, of being a college student and being sexually assaulted, kidnapped and sexually assaulted, and then having no resources during that time to really help her. That was the kind of tragedy of that particular situation that I wanted people to understand. I wanted people to understand that, you know, PTSD from from any sort of trauma in your life can, can destabilize. And when people are destabilized, it's when they're most vulnerable. And vulnerable people are subject to homelessness. That is, that's one part of that. And so I really wanted to create this piece with that in mind, because even while Terry was homeless, she was a champion for homelessness advocacy. Like, she was sleeping on the street in Boulder and at the same time writing letters to the Boulder Council saying, homelessness is not a crime. These people are suffering. These people are need help. And the story was so moving to me that I had to do something with it. Um, but specifically, I wanted to to do something that would be specific, that would be an homage to, to to Terry. And certainly, the violin concerto is kind of that perfect medium for that, simply because it allows the single voice to shine through um, amongst the, the the orchestra itself. So again, the music you heard there while Dylan told that story was selections from the second movement of the concerto, and that movement was titled "Left with Nothing." I, I had entitled it Left With Nothing because that was part of a quote from from Terry's autobiography, which is very interesting because there was a group in Boulder who collected stories and wrote stories about um, people experiencing homelessness in Boulder at the time. And most of the stories in there were written from journalists, but Terry wrote her own. So this three-page autobiography has some really beautiful things about her experience, but it also is very, it's very personal. The outer movements of the work, I, again, I took quotes from, from Terry's autobiography to kind of build 
that idea. And I built the third movement is I built a poem out of her words that in the form of a villanelle. And one of the things that's common throughout this, the history of this form is it's very repetitious in terms of which lines get repeated and where they get repeated because it's it's a concept of rumination. And so I wanted to capture that idea of of, of Terry's statements ruminating because the quotes that I chose for that are very much about her her concept that she kept coming back to and, and how when you're experiencing trauma, it just loops around in your head over and over. Something that uh, is the very last thing that Terry says in her autobiography, um, which is she, to paraphrase the thing that comes before it, it needs a bit of context, but to paraphrase, she says, you know, people don't think about that homelessness could happen to them. They don't believe that, they believe that their safety nets are there and they believe that the things around them will prevent them from having to this happening. And so the line is, well, it did happen, it happened to me. That line, <laughs> that, that line has haunted me so much. <laughs> like, sorry, I'm getting like weirdly laughy cry here because yeah, that line haunts me. So that's the, that line is a melody that happens over and over and over again. So how does that translate for you into music? Well, it did happen, it happened to me, is this melody. And I can hear, well, it did happen, it happened to me. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so play it for me again. Yeah. Here's a selection of the concerto's third movement for us, and we can hear how Dylan takes Terry's words in this poetic way and creates music. So um, the piece is not meant to be um, a triumphant end. It's actually meant to be kind of a call to action sort of thing in the sense that Terry's autobiography outlines very specifically what her intentions are, that she wants everybody to realize that homelessness is a, is a sickness of society that can be solved through people believing that they're not immune to it and by offering help and supporting the types of help that that are um that help people to not experience homelessness and so my piece ends in this in, in what i can only describe as a call to action and it actually bothered people i had somebody come up to me after the, at, at the premiere, like at the end, and be like, 
I really feel uneasy. Like, I, you didn't give us any closure. And I was like, good. Go take that closure and walk over to these people because it, it was great. At the premiere, it was people from the Greeley, city of Greeley, from the um, United Way, from the Greeley Family Shelter, and like, there were, there were representatives there to talk to people about these organizations. And so I was like, this, this woman who came up and was saying, I feel so uncomfortable with this, why'd you do that? I was like, because I want you to go and talk to these people. Like, go and, and do something, you know? I don't want you to feel comfortable. I end it with this kind of hanging note of, no, it needs to be a call to action. So yeah, the, to to experience that piece of music come to life exactly the way that I had envisioned it was, you know, <laughs> um, probably one of the very highlights of my life. I mean, um, last year was kind of a highlight thing for me. I got married and <laughs> the premiere of my violin concerto, which was this massive undertaking, it was just a very, like monumental year for me and that's that's what the piece was it was monumental in terms of listening to people bring it to life in that way we're doing good work in this world and like things can move forward and like this this can be good and like people are moved by the art and they're moved to to go and, and do something so yeah i felt like it was a very in the steps that i had taken for my own personal journey of saying I want, I want there to be a piece of music that remembers Terry. I want, I want this woman to be remembered. Um, I feel like that was a good step forward. We've showcased just a bit of Dylan's concerto here, but you can listen to the whole piece in its entirety and actually see a video of the concert with Sarah, his wife, playing violin on YouTube. There's a link in the podcast description for you. We could end the episode here. It's a very, it's a powerful ending, but I want to share one more aspect of Dylan's work first as composer in residence, which I think will also tie things back to the beginning of this episode. Dylan really did have a magical 2022, marrying Sarah, the love of his life, and finishing this great work that honors the life of Terry Sternberg. But he didn't want to stop there. He had more ideas and one of those ideas was the Magic Baton Melody Contest. Over the last couple of years, Dylan has gone into some of the school systems here in Weld County, and he's led songwriting and composition clinics with the kids. He's been having this great time with students doing this. And it made it so that when he said, okay, we're going to do this melody contest, he actually got a lot of submissions. 
Here's how it works. A student will write a melody, send it in to Dylan, and if it's chosen, Dylan then will create an entire piece for the orchestra, using the melody as the inspiration starting point. He has done two of these so far, and I've had a chance to listen to both of them, one from a middle school student and one from a high school student. But he is really hoping this becomes a tradition. I love being a composer and I love writing music, but I do feel like there's a teacher aspect of me that is less instructive and more of a guide in terms of I want I want to show kids that concept of composing. I want to open that door. I got a lot of great entries from the middle school and I got a lot of great entries from the high school divisions and um, just kind of waded through them and, and found the ones that really had some something that they were trying to say. And Lily and Alex's were very interesting. And so I chose Lily's first to do the middle school one for the Poinsettia Pops concert and then Alex's for the Sounds of the Cinema concert. So that's the first part. And then she has this thing at the very end. The last measure is. And there's, there, there has to be something to this because, you know, I chose Lily's melody and I was like, okay, she's saying something here. And I don't know, she, she's, she's, she's got something here that I need to like figure out because I can't, I can't make sense of it just from what she's written on the page, but I know that there's something deeper there. And so I went and I interviewed her about it, and she had this beautiful, elaborate story. She was like, oh, well, it's called Rose Dance because I envisioned myself in a, a beautiful gown, and I'm walking in the moonlight, and I walk through this beautiful rose garden maze, and I, you know, the moonlight is creeping through the roses, and I, and I come around a corner, and then there's a giant golden, gilded ballroom, and I step into the ballroom, and everybody notice how beautiful I am in my dress, and I'm just like, kid, you're amazing. And I was like, okay, so now I'm going to take your piece and I'm going to orchestrate it with that in mind because I can I can tell that there was something there. Now we need to get it to that point. And so I wrote the orchestration and I took her melody and I and I wound it around in these different ways. And it was just it was amazing. I had forgotten my tickets at home and I was running late to get to the, the show. So I got other tickets there that were much, much closer up to the stage than I was wanting to sit, but coincidentally, was sitting directly behind Lily and her family during that time. And so I just got to like sit there and watch and see what it, she was like. And it was this amazing moment of, of, there was so much pride and so much just, just from from being able to go from like step one to step 900 and being that something that would would help her get there
it was it was a really cool aspect and i think that's what i love about this particular role for me is that a composer in residence like this one where it's really education based and also community based it resonates with me that that kind of idea that I can serve a community and help strengthen that thing via a, a gift of telling a story, essentially. And I can teach young people to do this thing and then also turn out something that they then engage with on a deeper level. And that that's basically perfect for, for what I wanted to do with my education to begin with. I wanted to teach in that way. I just didn't know that that existed until Nick Kenny was like, oh, cool. So what would you do if you were composing residence? And I was like, I would do this. And he was like, great, go do that. <laughs> so I... And you're doing it. I, yeah, <laughs> I am doing it. Seven Symphonic Portraits will be Dylan's most ambitious piece yet and it's premiering on Saturday, October 14th. Those of us at the Foundation hope to see you there. Huge thank you today to Dylan Fixmer and his time in sharing. Special thanks to his wife, Sarah Off, for her showcasing of the violin throughout this episode and to the Greeley Philharmonic Orchestra, partnering with the Foundation for this story. If you'd like to hear more of Dylan's music, follow the link in this show's description. Thank you to Dave Farrell, a professor at Ames Community College for sound engineering. Today's show is made possible by the Weld Community Foundation. Head to weldcommunityfoundation.org for more. Thanks again for listening to Weld Found. Rate us on iTunes, share us with a friend, let them know season five is now out. <laughs>